special revelation he's given to us that you couldn't get anywhere else. Can't get it through science, can't get it through observation, can't get it through human reasoning. And then it says, um, those things are revealed, belong to us, and to our children forever. Well, where do we find those things forever? Well, look at the next phrase. That we, do, that we may do all the words of this law. How did we get the words? Inspiration. Where are those words communicated from? From God through revelation. And how long are we going to have them? Forever. He's preserved them. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that we would understand how precious and how privileged we are to have the words of God. Lord, I'm thankful we have it in our language. I'm thankful that you've preserved it. And Lord, that we can stand and boldly say, this is the word of God. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage and challenge our students and give them that trust that they can rely upon your word and that it has power. And we pray you'll speak to our hearts through the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There is a battle raging right now over the issue of the word of God. But be it known that this is not something new. In fact, the battle started in Genesis chapter 3 and has been going on ever since. Sam Gipp said this. He said, the battle isn't new. It's just the battleground that changes. This hasn't changed. Satan hasn't changed his tactics in 4,000, 6,000 years. Satan's goal has always been to make God look bad and to destroy his word and our confidence in his word. Now, our faith stands or falls on the premise that our Bible is the absolute true inspired, preserved words of God. If you don't believe that, then what are you doing here? If, why are you in Bible college? Why do you go to church? Everything we believe, everything that we hold dear to us and trust is based upon the authority of God's word. So if God's word is not his word, We've got a faulty foundation. If our Bible is not infallible, inerrant, preserved word of God, then all we have come to believe is built upon that faulty foundation. All we know of Jesus Christ, all we know of his resurrection, all we know of salvation, all we know of heaven and hell, all we know of creation, all we know of Christian living, the end times, and so on, is found in the Bible. If the Bible is not truly God's word, 
then our faith crumbles and we have no hope. We're like the rest of the world, wandering around trying to figure out what's truth. We got the truth right here. Charles Spurgeon, and I know you've heard of him, <clears throat> he was a contemporary with Westcott and Hort. If you're not familiar with Westcott and Hort is, they were part of a committee in 1881 that was to make some uh, additions or um, edits to the current King James Bible, and instead they introduced a new Greek text based upon what the German rationalists had come up with. This included uh, men like Griesbach and Kirk Aland and others who basically said that they didn't believe in the virgin birth, they didn't believe in the inspiration of scriptures, they didn't believe in the deity of Christ, they didn't believe in salvation by grace. And these men more than likely were unregenerate men. And yet, all modern textual criticism is based on those men's theories and Westcott and Hort's. Here's what Spurgeon said in relation to what was produced in 1885, the Revised Standard Version uh, in England. He said, if I did not believe in the infallibility of this book, by the way, the book he's talking about is the King James Bible. Okay, he's not talking about some, you know, original manuscripts that we don't even have. He's not talking about the Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts. He's talking about our King James Bible. He says, I would rather be without it. If I am to judge the book, it is no judge of me. If I am to sift it and lay this aside and only accept that according to my own judgment, then I have no guidance whatever unless I have conceit enough to trust my own heart. The new theory denies infallibility to the words of God, but practically imputes it to the judgments of men. At least... This is all the infallibility which they can get at. I protest that I would rather risk my soul with a guide inspired from heaven than with the differing leaders who arise from the earth and call and the call of modern thought. I'm not against scholarship, I'm not against academics, except when they become what they think is smarter than the Word of God. And like I said, when Spurgeon talks here about an infallible Bible and infallible words in that Bible, he's talking about his King James Bible. Now, if I were the devil, and some of you probably think I am, I don't know, but I would try to undermine and cast doubt in our final authority of our faith and practice, God's word. Now you think about it. If you're a Baptist, the first distinctive of Baptists is the word of God is our final authority for all faith and practice. Okay? That means that where we find our doctrine, where we find the application, 
where we find the practice is in the Word of God. If that is not the true Word of God, then go find it if you can find it. Because that's the way some people are. I've heard, I've heard men get up and preach and they'll say, I believe in the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Okay, well, where's your copy of it? Sometimes they'll say, well, it's in the manuscripts. It's, it's all the combinations of all the different versions. It's right here. It's right here. Now, let us then be assured of three truths about the Bible today that will give us confidence it is the Word of God and we can trust it. Now, the theme here at the church this year is trust him. Well, in order to trust him, you've got to trust his words. Now, first of all, we can trust God's word because it's power of authority. It's power of authority. This is a God-breathed book. 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm sure all of you uh, know this verse but it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, that word, inspiration, all scripture is given by inspiration. The Greek word is theopneustos, which simply means God breathed. And I've, I've read some things where somebody said, how come it should say not inspiration, it should say expiration, implying that God breathed out? Well, if, if you breathe out and you expire, what does that mean? Talk to me. What does that mean? You're dead. This book's not dead. That's why the word inspiration is the right word. Because God breathed into this word the breath that gives the word of God life. And believe me, this book is alive. Um, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it talks about when God made Adam. It says he formed him of the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostrils, what? The breath of life. He gave life to Adam. In other words, he inspired him. He breathed into him. And that's what God did to his word. The writers are not inspired. They're guided by the Holy Spirit to write what God wants written, but when it's written, it's written with the breath of God on it. And every word in this book, I believe, is exactly what God wants for us in the English language. These words are alive. Prove it, Brother Hauk. Okay. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is what? Quick. What does quick mean? alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How can a book, if it's not alive and not powerful, convict us? Jesus said it this way. Because it's alive, it is powerful. John 6, 63. <clears throat> this is in the context of he given the discourse on the bread of life. And they misunderstood some things he said. And here's what he concludes. He says, it is the spirit that quickeneth. Meaning, makes alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. This book is eternal. This book is not going to die. This book, no matter what somebody tries to do, it's, it's always going to be here. Verse 24, he says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the uh, flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth for how long? Forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Think about that. Do you realize that Peter, when he wrote that, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8? That's in, that, that's in those verses. I wonder where he got those words. He must have got them from a preserved Bible. Now, they didn't have Bibles back then. They had scrolls. That would have been a task if you were a college student and had to go soul winning back then. You'd have to have a mule to carry all your Bible. Well, let's see. Let me get this manuscript out. Let me get that one. Aren't you glad we have the whole Bible in one book today? Man, I love that. Now, this is why God's word gives strength when we're weak. It's alive. That's why the word of God gives comfort. Look, you get around somebody who just lost a loved one. There is no human words that can bring comfort. But you open up the Psalms and you start reading, gives comfort. I remember when my, my wife's mother passed away. She was a, she was a great mother-in-law. And um, it was a shock. And what do you say? And she's sitting at the kitchen table, and all I could do is I opened up the scriptures and started reading. And she said, you know, I'm not even sure if I remember all the verses you read, but I do remember the comfort of the words. Why? Because they're God's words, and they're eternal words, and they're living words, and they bring comfort. Um, they bring conviction. 
They bring conviction. Have you ever read your Bible and got under conviction? Yeah, the Holy Spirit uses it. It's life. It has life in it. It has power in it. Now, it, he gives guidance. Uh, it produces faith. It gives life. It brings eternal life because when we give the message of the gospel that's recorded in the word of God, people get saved. Leland Riken, who's not a strong advocate of the King James Bible, he wrote in his book, The Legacy of the King James Bible. He's writing about the advantage and all the, the wonderful things about the King James Bible in the, in the sense of literature, in the sense that the King James Bible is what molded the nation of Britain and the nation of America and the English-speaking nations. And here's what he says. The real cause against the King James Bible uh, for regular use today is the archaism of language. For modern readers unfamiliar with the King James Bible, the language is an insurmountable barrier. Really? Any of you have trouble with John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Is that hard to understand? He gave his only begotten son. That's what he's kind of saying here, okay? Um, he says, even for people who have always used the King James Bible, some of its words are a mystery. Really? I guess, I don't know, maybe he doesn't own a dictionary. I don't know, but I, I, if I don't know a word, what am I going to do? I'm going to look it up in a dictionary. But I need to say one more thing. This is what I want you to get. Whenever I hear a modern, a modern colloquializing Bible read in public, that's all the other versions other than the King James, I invariably feel the text to be flat and lacking in effective power. Well, that's because they're reading from the wrong version. You read from the Word of God, you're going to see the power. But he's talking about the power of the words or the colloquialisms. And he goes on, he says, on such occasions I am dismayed that a segment of the Christian public has settled for something so inferior when better options exist. Now, just so you know, Riken promotes and he uses the ESV, which doesn't make sense because he's praising the King James Bible. Here's how he concludes. He says, if I were forced to choose between the King James Bible and a modern colloquial translation, I would choose the King James Bible. Now, we see that the words of the King James Bible have power and force in their expression. Let me give you an example. Turn to Colossians 2.8. You know that verse probably. As you're turning, I'll read it. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now, how many of you know what the word beware means? I think all of us do. Have you ever gone somewhere and there's a sign by the beach? Beware, sharks. Swim at your own risk. 
I'll take the beware. What does that mean? It means watch out, man. Watch out. Now, so in Colossians 2.8, it says, beware lest any man spoil you. Here's how it says in, in the ESV, the English Standard Version. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Which, which has more of a punch? Beware or see to it? Well, that could be see to it that you make your bed. You know, see to it that, you know, you eat three meals a day. But when it says beware, you know, the warning lights go on. Hey, he's warning us of something. And that's what happens. Sometimes the translation may not be necessarily bad or wrong, but it waters down the punch and the power of the word. Um, he talks about archaism of the, of the King James Bible. Really? Is, is it Elizabethan English? And the answer is no, it's not. Is it modern English? No, it's not. You say, well, Brother Howe, what kind of English is it? It's called Bible English. And sometimes they made reference to it as the King's English. Not the King of England, the King of Kings. Amen. This is God's words in English. I wish I, I, wish I had time. I, had, I have so many quotes and stuff. That was what's so frustrating, trying to get this message together. But listen to this quote. This is by Winston Churchill. I don't know if he was a believer or not. My wife asked me that the other day. But listen to what he says here. Must everything in our world be pre-digested? Does the Bible have to be reduced to pablum? If you know what pablum is, it's baby food or baby drink or whatever. He says, I refuse to believe that modern man who has split the atom and is exploring space is unable to cope with the grandeur and the glory of the King James Version. I get tired of people saying, well, the King James Version is so hard to understand. What's hard to understand? I had two Jehovah Witness ladies come to my door one time, and we're talking, and somehow we got to, uh, I quoted Romans 3.23. I said, well, ma'am, the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And she says, well, that's your interpretation. I said, ma'am, I didn't interpret anything. I just read the Bible to you. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, that's your interpretation. No, it's not. It's Bible. That's all it is. Do you understand what it means for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? I think so. Most of the King James Bible is, was written on a fifth grade level. Of course, the way a lot of people read today, I don't know if it is a fifth grade level anymore. It might be a 12th grade level. I don't know. Frederick Kenyon, speaking about how the King James language is so embedded into our common language today. You guys probably say things every day that comes out of the King James Bible and don't even know it. And the world doesn't for sure. 
He said that one probably could not take up a newspaper or read a single book in which some phrase was not borrowed consciously or unconsciously from the King James Version. <laughs> um, and then he gives some examples, okay? Have you ever heard the term breach of promise? Numbers 14.34. The land of the living, Job 28.13. The apple of his eye, Deuteronomy 32.10. Stole his heart. Some of you girls probably heard that. She stole his heart. 2 Samuel 15.6. Eye to eye, Isaiah 53.8. The skin of his teeth. Maybe you haven't heard that. My mom used to say that. Boy, you made it just by the skin of your teeth. Job 19.20. At his wit's end. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever used that? I'm at my wit's end. Psalm 107, verse 27. The drop of a bucket. Psalm, or Isaiah 40, verse 15. How about this one? Handwriting's on the wall. Mm-hmm. Daniel 5, 5. He is beside himself, Acts 26, 24. And James 3, 6, uh, I'm sorry, uh, nature takes its course, James 3, 6. And then a little space, Acts 5, 3, 4. You ever hear somebody think, hey, give me a little space. Give me my space, give me a little space. It's from the Bible. So God, we have a God-breathed book. It's living. It's powerful. We have a God-preserved book. If God has power to inspire every word of Scripture, then he has the power to preserve every word of Scripture, even through the translations. In other words, if God inspired it, and it was only in the originals that we have the Word of God, can anybody produce for me today the originals? No, because we don't have them. We have copies of copies of copies, okay? But through those copies, God preserved, and through the translation, and through the comparisons of other translations, God has given us a book here, the King James Bible, that I believe is the preserved inspired word of God. He's preserved his words. And if we don't believe that, we're in trouble. Um, Acts 12, or Psalms 12, verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Psalm 40, verse 8, we read it earlier. Or we read it in 1 Peter. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of God shall stand forever. And guess what? Peter had a copy of it, no doubt, because he wrote it down when he wrote his, his epistle, 1 Peter. So it was still around then. And by the way, Psalm 40, it would have been in Hebrew. First Peter, it would have been in what? Greek. Hmm. 
So he preserved it from the Hebrew to the translation into the Greek. So why can't he preserve the Hebrew and the Greek into the translation of the English or Spanish or German or whatever? Matthew 5, 18. For verily I say unto you, I'll, uh, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. F. F. Bruce said this, the evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors. The authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. Nobody questions the authorship of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Nobody questions the writings of Pliny the Elder and Pliny, Pliny the Younger or whatever, okay? Now listen to what he says. No one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. It is a curious fact that historians have often been much readier to trust the New Testament than many theologians. Wow. Are you one of those doubters? I mean, the historians aren't. So we see its power of authority. Secondly, we see the power against the adversary. The power against the adversary. Nothing new under the sun, folks. Satan still attacks the Bible today. Here's some ways he attacks it. First of all, Satan used Hitler's, Hitler's in the world to physically destroy God's word by burning. Hitler burned Bibles. Romans, emperors burned Bibles. The Catholic Church burned Bibles. You can hardly find any original copies or even second edition copies of the Tyndale Bible. Why? Because they were all burned. Jeremiah wrote an original manuscript and gave it to the king of, of Israel. Or maybe it was the king of Judah. Jeremiah 36 says, So the king sent Jehudai to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishamah's, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudai read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now, the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudai read three or four pages, or leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth. So what did he just do? And says, until he, all the all the roll was, or the scroll, if you want to call it a scroll, consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. You know what he just did? He just burned the original copy of the book of Jeremiah. But you know what? I've got Jeremiah in my Bible. In fact, when Jeremiah wrote that, Daniel in Babylon had a copy of it because he read it in Daniel chapter 9. Don't tell me God can't keep his word and can't preserve it. He does. Hey, 
Moses ruined the first original copy of the Ten Commandments. That was the original. What did he do? He broke them. That's why you don't get angry. You break all Ten Commandments at once. (laughs) But what did, do we have the Ten Commandments today? Where'd we get them? Oh, copy. He took another stone tablet up and God wrote it again. You're not going to erase the words of God. You might not have the original manuscripts, you might not have some of the older ones, but you've got the word of God. Um, (laughs) Secondly, Satan appeals to the pride of man, convincing them they don't need to come under the authority of God's word. Well, that's what he convinced Eve of. Eve didn't believe what God said, you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. She believed what Satan said, you will not surely die, for the Lord doth know the day you eat of this fruit, you shall be as the gods, knowing good and evil. So then she depended on her own logic, her own lust. She saw it was good for food. She saw it was pleasant to the eyes and to make one wise, pride of life. So she ate of it. And then she realized, uh-oh, I messed up. So she got her husband involved in it too, gave him the fruit and he ate it. But he knew what he was doing. She was deceived. Number three, Satan used the Pharisees to mock Jesus' words and life. So today he uses liberal college professors and preachers who cast doubt and create questions through textual criticism about God's word. I'll give you my own testimony of that. When I was in Bible college, I had professors that would stand up and they'd say, well, um, the King James, that's, that's a good um, translation, but this is a better, more accurate one. And in this more accurate one, Mark chapter 16 and the end verses of chapter 16, starting with verse 10 or 9, is not there. It's not in the original manuscripts. Now, I wasn't, I was a freshman and sophomore. I was dumb. I didn't understand how do you know they weren't in the original manuscripts because we don't have the original manuscripts. And then they said, now, 1 John 5, 7, that is not in the Bible. So you know what I did? I hope I don't get judged for it. I wrote void over those passages. Void. Because they convinced me it wasn't the word of God. One summer, I was, <laughs> I was trying to be a good student. I tried to listen to my instructors, and so I started using New American Standard. And I was having my devotions. I was reading out of the New American Standard. And, and I read something. I said, I wonder what the King James says. So I'd go back and read the King James. And then I'd read a little bit more, and, and I'd go back to the King James. I kept going back and forth. And I finally said to myself, I don't think I trust this Bible. I don't trust the New American Standard. I keep going back to my King James Bible. So I stopped using it. But I had this moment of crisis where I said, you know, they're telling me that Mark chapter 16, part of it's gone. Acts chapter 8, verse 37 is not there. 1 John 5, 7 is not there. 
other places, John 3.13, and on and on. And I'm thinking, if, if that's not part of the Word of God, what is? And for a moment I thought, Christianity may not be true. I had about a 30-minute lecture to myself and talking about it and thinking through it, and finally I came to the conclusion, you know what? Christianity is the only teaching that says you're not saved by some system of works, you're saved by grace. And that brought me back. And then I, I learned more and came to the conclusion that I have today, that it's the Word of God. Um, the fourth thing, Satan gets the ungodly crowd to mock and ridicule the Word of God and those who use it and read it and believe it. Now, Voltaire was one of them. And I'm sure you've heard this story, but Voltaire said that by the end of his life, his writings would outdo the Bible, and the Bible would just be a book collecting dust on a bookshelf. Well, he died in 1778. Fifty years later, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and moved into the house and used his printing press to print Bibles. I wonder whose words are going to last forever. I think we know the answer. Ezekiel's records, um, he says in Ezekiel 20, 49, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, they say of me, Doth he not speak parables? In other words, they were mocking him for giving the word of God. The first century of the church, you had people that were, as it says in 2 Peter 3, says, knowing this first, there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Questioning, doubting, criticizing the Bible. I'm sure you've been made fun sometime in your life. So we can trust the fact that it, it's a power of authority. It's a power against the adversary because no matter what Satan has thrown at the word of God, it's still here. And he doesn't like that. So if he can get you to doubt it and stop using it, then he has succeeded. Well, let's look at the last thing very quickly. It's power to advance. It's power to advance. Jesus prayed and he said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word sanctifies and produces spiritual growth. 1 Peter chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 2, it says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. How do you know if God is gracious? And how do you know about God unless you study his word and know the Bible? There's a lot of Christians that quit, but they've never read the word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yes. <laughs> so don't, don't say, well, I'm quitting on Christianity because it, it, does, it just doesn't make sense. That's because you haven't read the word. You're not in the book. Number two, letter B there. To stand against the wiles of the devil. You cannot stand against Satan without the word of God. Ephesians 6, 
says, and taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to stand against what? The wiles of the devil. He didn't say attack him. He says stand against him. By the way, the only offensive weapon in all the armor there is the sword. And verse 18, prayer. Jesus said to those that believed on him in John 8, 32, he said, the truth, he that knows the truth, the truth will set him what? Free. You want to be free from Satan's lies and deceptions and counterfeits and counterfeit Bibles and perverted perversions, okay? Then know the book. Know the truth. So we, we can defend the faith, thirdly. Defend the faith, Jude 3. Listen to what it says. It says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. Now notice what he says. Here's the last part. Which was once delivered unto the saints. What is he talking about? He's talking about the word of God was delivered to the saints. Once. He inspired, gave us the inspired text, and then it was preserved through the copies through God's people. And then finally, to bring souls to Christ. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Where do you find the gospel? Where do you find the, the, the instructions of the gospel or what the gospel is? Yeah. It's in the Word of God. If you don't have the Word of God, you don't have the gospel. Oh, you might know it now, but if we didn't have the Word, the next generation won't. So, let me just conclude with a couple of questions. First of all, what are you doing with God's Word? What are you doing with it? Are you reading it? Are you studying it? Are you falling in love with the Savior that the scriptures talk about? Let me ask you this. Do you believe, do you believe it that God's, in God's perfect word? word? Do you believe in God's perfect word? Do you believe we have a book that is perfect? Or it's, well, it's just the best we have for now. Let me ask you this. Do you trust it enough to live by it.